0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1-9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace that provided such a remarkable salvation for us that we can have an eternal relationship with You and have eternal life simply because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And by simple faith alone, that salvation is ours. He did all the work, and we simply receive it. Father, we thank You for all that You have given us with our salvation, our new life in Christ, and all of the spiritual assets that we have. And above all, we thank You for our Savior, who is our High Priest and is our ever-constant help and aid. Now, Father, as we study Your Word, we pray that You would help us to understand these things and apply them to our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews 2, starting back in verse 5, down through three six, focuses on the exposition of the principle of the spiritual life that is, that basically states that Jesus Christ is the pioneer, the pathfinder. He is the one who set the course, the precedent for the spiritual life for the church age. And this is based in His humanity. The humanity of Christ is a crucial doctrine that is often not understood... In areas related to the spiritual life, often its focus is on the fact that he had to become a man in order to go to the cross to die as our substitute. But in this section, especially beginning in verse 10, there is the expansion of the idea that he is our assistant and set the course for us in sanctification. The section started off. Back in verse 5 and in verses 5 through 9 talks about the fact that Jesus was made lower than the angels so that having gone through the process of spiritual growth and then the cross, he would be crowned with glory and honor so that the path to the crown, the path to his ruling position was through the path of learned obedience through the things he suffered. That path is the same path every believer follows, and it prepares us in the same way to rule with Jesus Christ. So that principle is laid down in those verses that talks about the fact that he is over the angels and that the world to come is not subject to angels but to man, in ultimate fulfillment of man's original destiny and purpose, outlined in Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight. Then, beginning in verse ten, the author goes to the next level, saying that as Jesus Christ was matured through suffering, so we too are matured through suffering. For both, and in verse eleven, both he who sanctifies, that is Jesus Christ. And those who are being sanctified are all one. That is, we partake of the same nature. We're all human beings in reference to His total humanity, true humanity. And then verses, in verse 12, there's a citation from Psalm 22, 22 talking about, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of this assembly. I will sing praise to you. And that quote we saw coming out of Psalm 22.22 22, it talks about, well, the whole psalm talks about as a prophetic psalm, a messianic psalm that is quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So about the first seventeen verses of Psalm 22 focus on what Jesus Christ is going through on the cross. The last few verses focus on a praise to God for sustaining him while He's on the cross. The principle that the writer of Hebrews is drawing from that is that in the same way that God completely sustained the Lord Jesus Christ through all of His suffering, especially the greatest suffering that any human being will ever go through, if God sustained Jesus Christ through all of that, He's the same one who sustains us in whatever we go through, whether you're dealing with, with trials of adversity or prosperity... No matter what the situation may be, whether you're going through aggravation, whether you're going through things that, that anger you, whether you're going through things you know, rejection or financial trauma, whatever it may be, Jesus Christ has set the pattern for how we go through those trials and how we handle them. And it's based on trust in Christ, uh, trust in God, and that's the thrust of the second quotation, or the two other quotations that come in verse thirteen, from Psalm, excuse me, from Isaiah eight, seventeen and eighteen. And there's a an extremely strong way of putting this in the Greek. I have put my trust in Him in the past, with the result that I will always put my trust in Him in the future. It is a statement reflecting this uh, solid foundation of Christ's trust in God. That's the basis for. His deliverance. Then the author goes to another level in verse 14. And as much as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself likewise, and there's an important word indicating that Jesus Christ in the same manner shared in the flesh and blood in the same manner as us, emphasizing the true humanity which He took on At the Incarnation. This is foundational to this whole section. We call it the doctrine of the hypostatic union, and we'll get into that a little more uh, this evening. That it is through that that He destroyed the power of death on the cross. The greatest problem we'll ever face is the sin penalty, and the argument here is that if Jesus Christ solved the greatest problem you and I will ever face, then He can solve every other problem that we face. And then there's a conclusion in verse 16, for indeed, he does not give aid to angels. That is, Jesus Christ does not assist and help angels. That's not his role. He gives assistance to the seed of Abraham. And we turned to Galatians chapter 3 last time to show that that term seed of Abraham refers to everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, is of the spiritual seed of Abraham. It's not talking about Jews. Jews are of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In order to be a Jew, you have to be a descendant of all three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if you are a believer, spiritually you are of the seed of Abraham. And then we come to what appears to be a conclusion in verse 17, and that's where we're starting this evening. Therefore, in all things... He had to be made like His brethren. There we have that same verbiage that's been stated again and again. You'd think that the Holy Spirit understood the principle of repetition. Therefore, in all things, He had to be made like His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, there's three major... Ideas in this verse. The first is the issue related to the hypostatic union that Jesus Christ had to take on true humanity. He had to be made like His brethren. The second thing that we see is that this was for a purpose, which is to be a merciful and faithful high priest. And that that high priestly role is focused in this verse on His being a propitiation for the sins of the people. So let's start breaking it down a little bit to understand the depth of this verse. First of all, the initial phrase, therefore, isn't what we might expect if you know Greek, which is the uh, uh, word un, which is your normal con- word for drawing a conclusion, your normal inferential word. It is the Greek word hothen, which is also used to infer a conclusion, as referring to a cause, a ground, a motive for something. So since Hothan here is emphasizing the cause or ground for something, it's not really drawing a conclusion as much as it is now stating the ground or the cause or the reason for something that has already been said. So what was already said was in verse 16, the Hothan, the therefore is not drawing a conclusion as you would in a logical argument, but is going to state the ground for what has just been stated or the reason why uh, something that has already been stated is so. So in verse 16, we go back, we read, For indeed He, that is Jesus Christ, does not give aid to angels, but He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And this word used twice, giving aid, is the Greek word epilambano. Which means to take someone by the hand, to give them aid, to help them along the way, to take hold of them, to give help, to give assistance. So it is part of the role of God the Son to assist the believer in life today, not just the Holy Spirit. Remember when you are studying in John 14 and Jesus says, I need to go to the Father so I can send what?" another comforter. Another comforter. In the Greek word there is parakletos, one who comes alongside to help. So Jesus is one comforter, and the Holy Spirit is another comforter. So they have complementary roles in the process of the believer's sanctification. That's why Jesus is referred to back in verse 11 as He who sanctifies. He ultimately positionally sanctifies us because we're identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. And that we refer to as positional sanctification. But he is also involved through his high priestly ministry in giving aid to believers on a day to day basis, depending on the as we face various forms of adversity. So. The writer of Hebrews says, for this reason, that is, for the reason of being able to give aid to uh, the brethren, give aid to the seed of Abraham on the basis of giving aid to believers, he had to be made like his brethren. Now this is where we get into an interesting group of words. The word that we find here in in the Greek is the word... Homoi Homoio, see that's a little difficult for us to pronounce because if you look at this word right here, you have four vowels connected together. The first two vowels that are joined together are in English transliteration an O and an I. In the Greek it's an omicron and an, and an iota. If you went to college and you were in fraternities, you pronounced it an iota. And I'm going to use that to make a point in a minute, but it's homoi aO, ah, oh. and that last o oh is a long o. Oh. It's an omega, so it's pronounced like a long o. Oh, whereas the omicron is pronounced like more like an a. Ah. So it's homoi ao," ah, oh. and it means to make like, or to become like. So in relationship to his, to the brethren. That is, to human beings, he had to be made like human beings. Emphasis being that he is of the same essence as man. He is a true human. Now, the reason I make that point is because this is, in the course of church history, this word has had a special place in understanding the whole concept of the hypostatic union, the union of Christ's deity. And humanity. And the place where this was hammered out, the first place where this was hammered out in history was at the Council of Nicaea. I've got a better slide there. This was in 325 AD, and it was called the Battle of the Diphthongs, or it's been called the Battle of the Diphthongs. And remember, I told, just told you what a diphthong was it's a combination of two vowels, and they're pronounced as one. And if you look at the transliteration, since most of you can't read the Greek, you'll see that the difference here was between two words, Hamausias and usias. Now, it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of difference there other than that letter I, as we used to say, the iota. And that made all the difference in the world, though, theologically, because that first word would mean that Jesus Christ, in reference to His deity now, the word we're looking at, homoioos, Ao in Hebrews, is related to His humanity. But at Nicaea, they were trying to figure out how His deity related to the Father. And so, there there was one group of theologians that said, well, the word we should use is homoousios, which means He is of similar substance to the Father. Whereas another group said, no, he is fully God, undiminished deity, so he is usias." And in the 18th century, Edward Gibbon, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and he was basically anti-Christian, didn't like Christianity at all, thought it was the worst thing that happened in history. And he said, see, all they were arguing about was this silly little diphthong, and it didn't make an iota's worth of difference. So that's where we got the origination of that phrase. That it doesn't make. So you didn't know that it had to do with theology, and it has to do with one of the most important doctrines of Scripture. Now the Nicene Creed, which some of you may have learned to recite, if you grew up in a uh, church that was no more high church where you quoted creeds, you may have recited this. And it begins: We believe in one God, the Father. All-governing, or the Father Almighty, creator of all things, visible and invisible. And I think it's interesting that all of these creeds, going back to the earliest, the Apostles' Creed, start with creation and the Father. Then the second paragraph defines the Son. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father as only begotten. They're struggling with how to use human vocabulary to express the eternality of Jesus Christ in his deity and his equality with the Father. So they describe him as begotten, as only begotten. Not born, goes on to say, that is from the essence, that is the usia of the Father. You know, as the word we were just looking at is usia. That last part of the word usia means essence or being. So they said that is from the essence, the usia, the reality of the Father, God from God, Light from Light, True God from True God, begotten, not created, and they would say begotten, not not born. Begotten doesn't mean born. It has to do. It's a technical term to describe that eternal relationship between the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity. That Jesus doesn't become a son in history; he's always a son. Therefore, how do you describe that relationship? The Father is always the Father. The Son is always the Son. And so that term is eternal begottenness. So he's of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and earth. Let me see, I skipped the important phrase here. True God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. That's the word they had in the Greek, homoousios. And so they define the, the, the orthodox theologians were, were victorious in the debate, explaining that Jesus has to be identical in deity to the Father. But He also has to be identical in deity to the Son. And I always love this part of church history in the 4th and 5th century because they're hammering out what you and I all seem to take for granted, and that is our understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the first question they had to answer, which is what they answered at Nicaea, was, what was Jesus before He came? And before Jesus came, He was eternal God. He was the same essence of the Father, God from God, Light from light, true God from true God. But then the question became, after Nicaea, okay, what was Jesus when He came? And if Jesus was God and eternal before He came just exactly what was He when He came. How do you explain this union of humanity and and deity? And so they had to wrestle with that. They didn't just say, oh, He was undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. No, it took them about 150 years to get that figured out. And in the process, they wound around through several things they ultimately discovered were heresy. And one of the first attempts was the... Attempt by a man named Apollinarius. And in his view, he said that you had the, in, in, in humanity, every human being has three components a body, a human soul, and a human spirit. Well, when it comes to describing how the eternal deity of the second person of the Trinity was joined with man, his solution was to say that he had a human body. And his soul was divine. The divine logos was the term that they used. And he had a human spirit. The problem with this is it makes Jesus only partly human. He's got a human body and a human spirit, but he has a divine soul. So he's not fully human. He's not fully divine. And so that was rejected. And that was declared heretical at the Council of Constantinople in 381 B.C. 325 was Nicaea. 381. This is 56 years later. They condemn Apollinarian. Now, Apollinarius was straight at Nicaea, but he, he can't quite figure out how to explain the humanity and deity of Christ. So the next one up who tries is a guy named Nestorius. Now, there were a lot of Nestorian Christians who went east and took the gospel into India and China, In subsequent centuries, this was a major view that was held by many different missionaries, and it was dominant in a lot of areas even of Western Europe up through the early Middle Ages. Now, Nestorius almost sounds right, because he talks about the fact that Christ is fully God and fully human. See, he wasn't fully God or fully human with Apollinarius. But the way he describes it makes it sound as if Christ has... A divine nature has a human nature. He's a divine person and he's a human person. Do you all hear that sound? Where's that coming from? Do you know? Telephone? Somebody's telephone somewhere else? Okay. Uh, So you have two natures and two persons and there's no true union. Remember, the term that we use is the hypostatic what? The hypostatic union. There's a union of his of humanity and deity in one person. So Nestorius took his stab at it, and in 431, that was declared heresy at the Council of Ephesus. So one more guy comes up and makes his stab at it, and that's Eutyches. And Eutyches says that, okay, you have a divine nature over here on one side, and you have a human nature over here on the other side, and they blend together together in Jesus. So he has two natures that he st- stuck in the osterizer uh, and blends them up and it just creates a third nature. So Jesus is now sort of a third being. He's not truly human. He's not truly divine. He's just a, he's just a mix. And that was declared heretical at the Council of Chalcedon, which is a suburb of Constantinople, in 451. And this is how they wrote the Chalcedonian Creed, and most of you didn't grow up in, in churches where they recited creeds like this, but this is where we get our verbiage for defining the hypostatic union. It comes right out of Chalcedon. This is the great one of the greatest theological documents of all time. It begins, we also teach that we apprehend or we believe that this one and only Christ Son, Lord, only begotten, in two natures. And we do this, and those two natures would be his divine nature and human nature. And we do this without confusing the two natures. That was Eutychianism. Without transmuting one nature into the other. That's that blendedness of, of Eutychianism. Without dividing them into two separate categories where they're all spread apart. That's historianism without contrasting them according to area or function. Sometimes you hear people say, well, Jesus did this out of his deity, and he did this out of his humanity. You've heard that kind of talk. That makes it sound like he's two people. We have to be careful. There are things that Jesus did, such as when he wept at Lazarus' grave, which indicate his true humanity. There are things that Jesus did when he changed the water into wine that indicate that he was undiminished deity but he doesn't do one from one side and something else from another side. That's that's almost Eutychianism, where you have two different persons, almost you, you split it so far apart. So that's what they're getting at there, without dividing them into two separate categories or, and without contrasting them according to area or function. The distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. In other words, nothing that happens on the divine side Nullifies any attributes of His humanity. Nothing in His humanity nullifies or diminishes anything in His deity. The distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. Instead, the properties of each nature are conserved. Undiminished deity stays undiminished deity. True humanity stays true humanity. And both natures concur into one person and one essence. That will give you something to think about tonight while you're trying to go to sleep. Two natures, one person. That's the mystery of the hypostatic union. They are not divided or cut into two persons. That was Nestorianism. But are together the one and only and only begotten logos of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's your theology lesson for the night. That's how we got our understanding of the hypostatic union in a nutshell going through 150 years or 126 years actually of church history. The whole concept is clearly taught over in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 and Philippians chapter 2 along with Colossians chapter 2 are your three core chapters that deal with the person of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, the thrust of what Paul says in Philippians 2 isn't a doctrinal discourse on theology. It's a discourse on humility. But in order to understand what true humility is in your life, in my life, we have to understand its model, which is in the Make up of the Lord Jesus Christ and His assumption of humanity at the Incarnation. That's the standard for de- defining humility. So if we're going to talk about humility, we have to start with the Incarnation, not with an abstract concept of humility, not going to Webster's Dictionary to see how the dictionary de- defines humility. You start with Philippians 2. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was in Jesus Christ, who, that is Jesus Christ, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God. Now that first phrase, being, is a participle of the Greek word huparkon, which should be taken as a concessive participle that although or even though He existed in the form of God, even though He is full deity, even though He is sovereign God of the universe, even though He is the Creator of all things, even though He is the One to whom all obedience is to be addressed, even though He is the One who owns everything, even though He is the One to whom all obedience Subservience and honor should go. Even though he's fully God, he didn't think that that was something to be held on to. That's the thrust of Paul's argument here. Who being, that is, although he existed in the form, and that word form is the Greek word morphe. We use that in the kind of term morph to uh, morph to change into something it has to do uh, with the meaning of nature or the essence of a thing though he had the essence of deity although he existed with all the attributes of deity the essence of deity he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God literally that should be understood he did not think deity was something to be grasped after what imagery do you have there to grab for something what was going on in the garden of Eden the serpent came along and said to Eve, did God say you can't eat from all the fruit in the garden? Eve said, well, we can't eat it or touch it. Well, he said, that's that's not true. God just doesn't want you to be like Him. So go ahead and eat. And so what Eve did and then Adam did was they grabbed for deity. They wanted to eat that apple so they could be like God. Well, Jesus, even though He was fully God, didn't think that was something to be held on to or grabbed onto. So he emptied himself, that's the uh, Old King James uh, translation, he made himself of no reputation, it's the word kanao, this is where we get the famous kenosis passage. What it means, the emptying of himself doesn't mean that he gave anything up, it means that he added humanity to his deity. Often, I know you've heard it's an old definition. It goes back, I think, Dr. Walford has it defined this way in his uh, book on Jesus Christ, Our Lord, and others have used this definition that uh, in the kenosis, that Jesus Christ, Second Person of the Trinity, voluntarily um, gave up the independent use of His attributes. A definition that every seminary student has memorized for years, and many of us have heard over and over again. But there's a flaw in that. Because if the implication is, when you say that He voluntarily restricted the independent use of the attributes, the implication is that, well, did He ever use His attributes independent of the Father? No, He never used His attributes independently of the Father. He was always in complete sync with the Father. The real issue in in the kenosis is that Jesus added humanity so that He faced the problems of life in the Incarnation by relying not upon His divine attributes, but by relying upon the provisions that God gave Him that are the same provisions that God gave to you and to me. He's not facing the tests in the wilderness by using His divine power to turn the stones into bread. He's not using His divine power to handle Uh, various problems that were challenges to his personal spiritual life. That doesn't mean that he did all of his uh, miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. He did some that way. But others he did in his own deity to demonstrate that he was God, changing the water into wine, raising Lazarus from the dead. These were things he did in his own divine power, but they were not done to handle the problems or adversities that he faced in his spiritual life. They were used to demonstrate who he was. So he, as the New King James translates it, he made himself of no reputation by taking on the essence of humanity. So it defines for us what kenosis is. It's not giving up his deity, it's taking on humanity. It's adding true humanity to his eternal, undiminished deity. So he took on the form that is the nature or essence. It's the same word used of. Uh, uh, in the previous verse, to describe uh, his, the essence of deity, so you have the essence of deity, the morphē of deity in verse six, and the morphē of a bond servant in verse seven, and he came in the likeness of men. What's that word? Likeness. Does it look familiar to you? Homoí oma. It's the noun form from the verb that we see in Hebrews 2.17, uh, a o. It's just the noun form. He comes in the likeness of humanity. Anthropos, the human race. He has all the attributes of humanity, minus the sin nature, because that's not what Adam had as part of his original equipment. So he comes as true humanity... Just like Adam was originally created. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There's that same principle we're finding in Hebrews that he learned obedience by the things he suffered. He humbled himself, which means he placed himself under the authority of God, and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He was willing to go through all of that suffering, all of that heartache, all that punishment... Because that was God's plan for man. Now let's go back to Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, that is, for this reason, in order to be an aid to mankind, to be our, our assistant to believers going through adversity and tests, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, in all things, in every area of his makeup, he had to be true humanity, that he might be, so now we have a purpose clause, the first principle is he had to be made like his brethren so he could be our, our helper, our assistant. Being made like his brethren had a further purpose, and that was to be a high priest, that he might be, and the verb there is the aris middle subjunctive of the Greek verb ginomai, which indicates becoming something you're not. You have two what they call existential verbs in Hebrew. Which is just fancy grammatical term for verbs that have to do with existence. Actually, there's three, the words that have to do with being. There's a me, which it has to do with I am, and there is ginomai, which has to do with becoming, and then there's huparko, which has to do with existence. This word ginomai uh, is the word that is used of. John the Baptist in John one four that there came to be a man named John Genomai in contrast to Jesus Christ who always was in the beginning was the word a me always existing but John came into existence it's the difference between the eternal creator nature of Jesus Christ by whom all things come into existence according to John chapter 1 Versus the creature, John the Baptist, who comes into being. So again, this emphasizes his humanity. And to be a high priest, he had to be true humanity, full humanity. So the purpose for being made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And this introduces us to the doctrine and concept of the high priesthood. What is a high priest? What does a high priest do? Well, let's go through this. We've got about 6 points to summarize the doctrine of the high priesthood. In the Old Testament, the role of a priest was to serve as a mediator. A mediator takes place, takes uh or partakes of the essence of both parties. This is similar to the role of that you see mentioned in 1 Timothy 2:5 for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the what? The man Christ Jesus, So he has to partake of true humanity so that he can be the go-between, the mediator, function as a high priest between the human race and between God. The only priest that is mentioned in the Old Testament before you get into the Aaronic priesthood in the Mosaic Law is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek demonstrates that there was a royal priesthood early on prior to the Mosaic Law. Now the human dimension, point number two, the human dimension of a priest was related to sin as we see it unfold in the Old Testament. Now there's a sense in which the priesthood doesn't relate to sin because we're going to have a priesthood related to believers and the church age believers in the millennial kingdom when we're in resurrection bodies, because we're going to come back and be priests and kings to God that point, it's not going to relate to God, but it has to do with service to God. So there's these two dimensions, but the role of the priest, as we see it after the fall, is related to sin and the need for a go-between between man and God because the barrier between God and man has been broken through sin. Third point, the priest's role was to function in the area of representing man to God, the prophet. Spoke for God to man. The priest represented man to God. In the early part of the Old Testament, the family patriarch functioned as the family priest, would build an altar, offer a sacrifice. This is what uh, you see Adam doing. This is what you see Noah doing after the flood. This is uh, what Abraham is doing when he goes through the land and he builds altars. This is functioning in the priestly role, even though the word wasn't used. The first priest that is mentioned in the Old Testament was Melchizedek, who's the mysterious royal priest, the king of Salem, who is said to be the priest of God, El Elyon, God Almighty, Genesis fifteen eighteen, And that's one priesthood. And that is a priesthood we'll come back to study as we go through Hebrews. The other priesthood that's developed in the Old Testament, point number five, is the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood related to Aaron. Now, one of the things as I find as a teacher, every now and then you learn something a little new, and then your mind kind of gets it bum-fuzzled because you haven't heard it that much. And this morning I was teaching in my class at the college on through, through numbers, and I had never quite nailed this down before, but I realized that You couldn't function as a priest unless you were a descendant of Aaron. Not just a high priest. To be a high priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron through Eleazar. But to be a priest, to function as a priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. The Levites aided in the various other services taking care of the the tabernacle. But you could be a member of the tribe of Levi, but you couldn't function as a priest. You could only function as a priest if you were a descendant of Aaron. Now some passages... In the in the Old Testament, aren't real clear about that, but that's the the thrust is that you had to be a descendant of Aaron to function as a as a priest. Leviticus twenty one ten talks about the high priest as the greatest priest among the brethren. Notice how similar that terminology is to what we find here in Hebrews two, talking about the brethren, talking about the the children back in. Uh, Verse 11, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. And verse 12, I will declare your name to my brethren. So uh, you see the writer of Hebrews is immersed in Old Testament vocabulary. Point number six, many of the high priest's duties were similar to other priests. Carrying out the sacrifices, the offerings... But his duties, ultimately, what distinguished him was that his duties related to all the people, of the entire nation. Uh, other priests, other duties of the priests would be declaring God's will to the people, or teaching the Torah (Deuteronomy 33:10) and participating in sacrifices and offerings. But the primary duty of the high priest was to represent the nation on the Day of Atonement (Yom Kippur), which, incidentally, was celebrated according to the calendar for this year, last Thursday. And the Day of Atonement represented the salvation of the nation, and it's fulfilled prophetically at the end of the tribulation. And the Day of Atonement is described in Leviticus 16:1 through 9. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later in the temple, and he would place the blood of a lamb that was without spot or blemish on the mercy seat, of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was a sign that God's righteousness was satisfied or propitiated, which is exactly where we go in this second part of this verse. And there's just such a rigorous, logical flow here. And the word translated propitiation, which we come to here, that he's going to be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people is the Greek word halaskamai, but that word is the word that translates the Hebrew mercy seat in the translation of the Old Testament. So the high priest makes atonement for God. Now, one more thing before we move into propitiation. Jesus is to be like his brethren so that he can be a harsh judge of mankind. Is that what it says? No, no, it's a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, merciful brings out the dimension of grace. Grace is undeserved favor or unmerited kindness. Mercy is grace in action. Mercy is sort of grace ratcheted up and put into uh, application in specific situations. So he becomes like his brethren, fully human... So that he can be a merciful high priest and a faithful high priest. The Greek word there is pistos, not pistis, I-S, which is the word for faith, but pistos, P-I-S-T-O-S, which emphasizes his faithfulness, his consistency and his constancy. That He is immutable. As the writer of Hebrews says later on, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, we can always count on that no matter what the problems, challenges are that we face in life, we have to just stop, take a deep breath, and cre- trust and rest in Jesus Christ because He's been there before us and He set the pattern for how we are to respond to the outside pressure of adversity. And this is related to his high priestly role, which is grounded in the doctrine of propitiation, which has to do with satisfying the righteousness and justice of God. So we see that this is the basic problem that man has with God, or part of the basic problem, which is God's character. God is a righteous and just God. So we find verses such as Romans 8.8, which says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Psalm 7.9, Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous for principle. The righteous God tries the hearts and minds. It is the justice of God that evaluates man. We have to satisfy His justice. Psalm 7.11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation. That is the application of His righteousness through His justice toward mankind. God has indignation every day. Psalm 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Now, where was God enthroned in the Old Testament? Little test. He's enthroned between the cherubs. According to the psalmist, He's enthroned between the cherubs. Where does that exist? The throne of God was viewed as being between the cherubs on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, inside the tabernacle later the temple so here we have uh, David in Psalm 89 reflecting upon the fact that righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne so you can take that and apply that to the mercy seat which we'll see in a minute now the word for mercy seat was the he- Hebrew word kaporath which means propiti- propitiatory or the mercy seat and the mercy seat was located on the center of the uh, lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box that's described here in Exodus 25:17 and 18. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherub, literally cherubs, of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. So they're looking down... On to the mercy seat, and here is one uh, model that has been constructed of the Ark of the Covenant. It's roughly, if you convert those measurements into English, it's 45 inches by 27 inches by 27 inches. It's a box made of acacia, acacia wood and overlaid with gold, which pictures the humanity and the deity of Christ, the hypostatic union. The box itself contained the urn of manna, which the Jews rejected, so it's an indication of the rejection of God's logistical grace. It contained Aaron's staff, the one that was placed inside the tabernacle, and it sprouted leaves, and the staffs from the other leaders of the other tribes did not. So it's called Aaron's rod that budded. And it speaks of the sin of the people when they rejected Aaron's priestly leadership. That's inside the ark. And then the tablets of law that the people had broken. So these three elements, the manna, Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the law picture the transgression, the sin of the people. And so when the high priest would go into the uh, holy place, he would place the blood from the lamb on the mercy seat. That's a picture of a covering of the sin. The cherubs that picture the righteousness and justice of God as holiness look down and are satisfied by the sacrifice. This is a picture of what Christ did on the cross. He is that sacrifice that satisfies the righteousness and the justice of God. Romans 3.25, and there, there's four key passages on propitiation in the New Testament. One is the one we're in, Hebrews 2.17. The other is Romans 3.25. Whom, that is Jesus Christ, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in His blood, through faith. This was to demonstrate His, that is God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. 1 John 2 2. He Himself, that is Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, Christ propitiated the Father with relation to the sins of the whole world, but it isn't applied unless you trust in Christ as your Savior. 1 John 4 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So he verse seventeen of Hebrews says that he had to be made like his brethren in order to be their assistant in verse sixteen. I keep going back to verse sixteen. Sixteen and eighteen both talk about Christ's assistance to us. And what's in the middle is an understanding of his that he had to be made like his brethren, hypostatic union. So He could be a high priest, that is to go to the cross and be our mediator, so that He could propitiate the Father in relationship to our sins. Those three elements lay the foundation for His being able to be our aid, our assistant. So we come to verse 18, "...for in that He Himself suffered, being tested, and we have gone through the doctrine of testing last Thursday night. We related it a little bit on Sunday night, and we went through it again Tuesday night in relation to Abraham's being tested by God when he was commanded to take Isaac up on the mountain of Moriah. And we've gone through this so extensively in the last couple of weeks. I'm not going to go through it again, but testing is the means by which we apply doctrine that we've learned and demonstrate what we've learned and it becomes a testimony to man and to the angels. So in that he himself has suffered, that is Jesus Christ being tested, he is able to aid those who are tested. And the word here for aiding those who are tested is the Greek word boetheo. Boetheo, which derives from two root words, boe and, and uh, theo, which has the idea of running uh, on hearing a cry, running when you hear somebody scream out for help. And so it came to mean to give assistance, to give help. Its, number, its primary synonym is the word antilambano, which is the word that is used for giving aid in verse 16. So the writer of Hebrews is tying these two concepts together. Because he was tested, he is able to aid those who are being tested. Now the writer is going to move to another level of development in his and his argument. And he's going to use that same word we saw in verse 17, hothen. For this reason or for this cause, holy brethren, for this is verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason or this cause, that is to do all these things in giving aid and assistance, Holy brethren, that's referring to believers, partakers of the heavenly calling, we have a purpose and destiny, consider the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So we're moving to an application. Because of this, he is saying, I'm, going to come, I'm just setting the stage for next week. Because he entered into hypostatic union, because he became a man, because he was matured through suffering because He is the one who sanctifies, and we who are being sanctified are all united together. Because He has conquered death, because He is the high priest and can aid us, because of all of these things, consider, and the word here for consider means to contemplate, to concentrate on, to study in detail the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. This is occupation with Christ. Because he's done all these things, everything laid out from 2.5 down through 2.18, we are called upon to take time to think deeply and profoundly about the person and work of Jesus Christ and how that ought to change the way we respond and react to the various problems and difficulties in life. And then he's going to develop that in relationship to Moses in the next few verses before we get into the exhortation system uh, section. So that is our setup. We finished chapter 2. We're moving ahead into chapter 3, and we'll get into that next Thursday night. Father, we thank You for this time to study Your Word. We thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that went into uh, what He did in terms of the incarnation and His life on the earth culminating at the cross, then the resurrection and His ascension, and his current role as our high priest and the one who aids and helps us as we grow and advance in the Christian life. Father, we pray that we can be reminded of these principles by God the Holy Spirit as we go through various tests in life, that we too may follow our Lord Jesus Christ in advancing to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.